Hello everyone, this is uh, Alberto Ferro, your host at uh, Where is the Music podcast. As you're getting ready for a new musical investigation, preparing your ears and imagination for another journey in the world of music, I would like to remind you that Where is the Music podcast has no sponsor. It relies entirely on donations from listeners like yourselves. You can find a link to my website, albertoferro.com, and to my Patreon account in the episode description. If you like what I do and would like me to continue doing it, I encourage you to become a supporter of the podcast, which publishes an episode every week. Thank you for listening, and now let's find out where is the music. Hello everyone and welcome back. Thanks for tuning in again to Where is the Music podcast. Today I wanted to announce the beginning of a series of episodes uh, around one of my f- one of my most favorite um, works uh, in uh, the musical repertoire. This is the Well-Tempered Clavier by Johann Sebastian Bach. Um, I thought it would be a good idea to uh, discuss, uh, let's say, important musical threads uh, throughout uh, a series of episodes rather than on uh, trying to uh, compact one into uh, one single episode. Um, and the well-tempered clavier uh, is perhaps um, a good beginning. Uh, first, uh, I must say that for the past uh, um, 20 plus years I have been frequenting this work uh, in various ways Um, but also for the last one slash two years I've been investigating new uh, aspects of it and uh, practicing I would say it uh, more uh, consistently than usually um, discovering and enjoying (laughs) every discovery I, I can probably say I've been uh, developing a mild obsession for it. Uh, that's uh, that's possible. Um, but such uh, a huge work, uh, and to a certain extent, not so uh, well known. Not, I would say, um, as known as other works by uh, the mm, German composer, uh, such as uh, the Brandenburg concerts or uh, the. Goldberg Variations or his uh, cello or violin suites. So uh, this work has some uh, peculiarities that makes it uh, at once uh, unique in its genre, um, remarkable historically, an accomplishment, uh, I would say, to the level of uh, Dante's Commedia or uh, the Shakespeare's tragedy, tragedies. Um, and at the same time um, quite difficult to uh, encounter and to enjoy plainly through performance as a matter of fact this is music quite um, quite difficult quite uh, heavy uh, at least uh, to hear all at once Um, we perhaps uh, we will see why this is the case and um, if there is um, any, uh, let's say, uh, if there is anything o- at odd with uh, Bach's uh, initial intentions, uh, his uh, creative intentions. So, 
the well-tempered clavier uh, is uh, unique for a variety of reasons is um, first of all a collection of pieces uh, organized in a sort of uh, encyclopedic way um, encyclopedic perhaps ante literam because the first uh, proper encyclopedia of the enlightenment was compiled uh, at the end of the uh, 18th century we are towards the beginning of the 18th century mm, there is the interest in Bach in collecting and compiling a sort of uh, uh, book where all the instances of uh, the current music of his time uh, were exemplified um, so it is a um, surprising operation in a sense because uh, if you study uh, the artistic attitudes of uh, his contemporaries the earlier 1700 you will find many artists who were trying to just uh, uh, pretty much impose their own uh, stylistic traits uh, they were less interested in finding out other styles probably even possible past styles uh, maybe even foreign styles Mo uh, they were not so interested as they were to develop their own um, original and unique and personal uh, style uh, Bach has a, a slightly different trajectory uh, he is curious about everything that surrounds him uh, he transcribes a lot of uh, music for example famously transcribed uh, Vivaldi transcribes uh, Parcel and uh, Albinoni Marcello uh, transcribes everything that he is able to put his hands on um, I mean these aspects of uh, Bach personality and artistic uh, personality leads us to the second quality of this book because uh, this is music composed for the express purpose to learn about music not uh, necessarily to perform it which is quite odd what does it mean? Um, it seems that there were particular compositions many of um, Bach's compositions they were written for the, status, for the stated purpose of being performed even during mass or during festive celebration like Christmas or, or Easter's, talking about the Passions, the Cantatas, uh, or other perform other um, compositions that were supposed to um, perhaps uh, celebrate a particular uh, event, or maybe a prince or uh, a member of the aristocracy. Uh, other pieces that were supposed to just uh, be entertaining um, uh, compositions. Uh, this one does not seem to fit in any of this category uh, he makes uh, um, uh, he makes he makes it clear that every composition is an investigation in a particular style uh, a particular um, technique technique of uh, playing the keyboard and a technique of composing music composing polyphonic music there are references to um, organ music, a reference to um, 
harpsichord of course most of it were was composed on a, a keyboard uh, on a version of a keyboard of the time which was either the harpsichord or his favorite uh, personal favorite type of keyboard which was uh, a smaller and more delicate clavichord uh, but then the references expand to uh, forms and uh, styles that more have that have more to do with um, orchestras and uh, and vocal um, ensembles. Um, there is everything in it, and um, it seems to have uh, created a, a snapshot at once of the current state of music in in Europe. As I was saying, there are references to all the genres and styles of the early 1700 and uh, also a research book uh, in which uh, composition and performance technique are uh, taken to their limit. He used his own books to teach the most uh, prominent and talented students uh, of his at the time, including some of his uh, sons. Uh, you might note uh, Bach had plenty of uh, sons and daughters, uh, two, actually three of them, they later became their own musicians, I'm talking about uh, Wilhelm Friedman Bach and Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, the third uh, Christian, I forgot his name, the third one is probably uh, just less uh, less important, <laughs> but um, uh, mainly these two, William Friedman and Carl Philipp Emanuel, um, are remembered in history. They were composers and they published music at uh, the time. I would say uh, it's interesting to know that they did not regard uh, their own father uh, with uh, too much uh, admiration. Uh, there is a record in which uh, I think it was um, Carl Philippe Emanuel, although I'm not entirely sure about it. I should, I should double check which one of the two songs happened, but anyway, the story is funny because uh, roughly 20 years after uh, Johann Sebastian's death, Carl um, Philippe Emanuel was visited for a few days by um, a music scholar uh, uh, who decided to make a sort of interview and uh, spend some time with uh, with uh, the great artist of its time, Carl Philipp Emanuel, who was uh, a um, remarkable um, composer in the new Galant style, very different from Bach's style, uh, Bach's father's style. Um, and so uh, while spending time wi with him, he noticed there was this uh, very old book on one of his keyboard uh, covered in dust uh, and so so what about uh, what about this book and and Carl Philippe Emanuel responded something like well this is just uh, my father's well-tempered clavier he dedicated it to me which is which is true historically he dedicated it to me but I don't I really don't find it particularly interesting <laughs> this speaks volumes of uh, the ability of composers of the time to recognize the value of such an uh, important work of art. Uh, sometimes their perspective uh, fails to discover, to appreciate the importance of things that happen uh, right in front of your eyes. Um, and 
one last uh, uh, characteristics about uh, the well-tempered clavier that probably is the most uh, known about it, uh, certainly the most talked about it, and in a sense, I think it is uh, slightly legendary about uh, about it. Uh, there is a sort of a myth. This refers to the fact that um, the well-tempered clavier was the first work to rely on the equal temperament, uh, which is the system by which the octave um, is divided equally in 12 uh, semitones, uh, making it pretty much uh, exactly what it is today. Every instrument to be to sound in tune today needs to refer to this system, but it hasn't always been the case. Equal temperament is the result of uh, experiments and um, and discussions throughout centuries. At the beginning of the 1700s, there were a lot of different, uh, slightly different types of tunings. Some were more natural in their form having the octave not exactly divided in uh, 12 key, 12 uh, semitones. Um, if you're not um, familiar with this idea, uh, it's probably, uh, uh, probably not ideal to spend uh, the, the necessary time to go into the details today, just uh, it's important to know that um, this perfect subdivision in 12 semitones of the octave uh, is not uh, natural is not uh, following the way harmonics develop naturally it's uh, we can we can talk about it as a sort of uh, adjustment that was possible through mathematical experimentation and that was pushed by uh, stylistic needs of uh, the time as a matter of fact uh, with the previous system one could only compose in particular tonalities such as uh, c major D major, E major, F major, but with uh, with this new system, one can compose in twelve different tonalities, minor and major, um, including C sharp major, C sharp minor, E flat major, E flat minor. So the creative potential just multiplied enormously for composers, and uh, Bach certainly was one of the first to. Um, to take advantage of it and uh, we certainly can see the well-tempered clavier uh, as a demonstration of its uh, of, of his intention uh, he wrote uh, music in uh, in both of the books because by the way I didn't mention yet he wrote two different versions of the of uh, the well-tempered clavier and he wrote a pair of pre prelude and fugue on each of the 12 uh, keys in two modes so 12 major keys and 12 minor keys so you will find in C major a prelude and fugue in C minor a prelude and fugue in C sharp major a prelude and a fugue in C sharp minor a prelude and a fugue and so forth the result is uh, 48 um, pieces uh, which uh, compile a single book and uh, 48 pieces which compile, compile a second book 
which uh, Bach finalized uh, 20 years after the first. A um, couple of words on the couple of words on the term clavier, uh, because well tempered we know what it means now. It means uh, equal temperament, but in the term clavier refers to generally a keyboard. Uh, at this time, it's a harpsichord, and I, as I mentioned, his favorite uh, way, his favorite keyboard was the smaller clavichord uh, that allowed him more, uh, let's say, articulation nuances more legato and even the clavichord allows a little bit of vibrato unfortunately the clavichord is an instrument that uh, in general is uh, quite small the sound is quite weak so it's really hard to um, to hear it in a, a room larger than uh, a small room <laughs> so uh, it's very difficult to have it in live performances while the harpsichord has a much stronger sound mm. another keyboard of course is the organ um, Bach was a master of the organ we can see how many compositions have a typically organistic uh, style of course the organ implies uh, pedals I mean music being played by the feet but um, in this case, none of the works involve uh, the feet, involves pedals. So, overall, we can say that the work establishes the keyboard as the primary instrument for uh, the creation of music. We know that Bach was a violin player. Uh, he probably played, he was proficient probably in, in other string instruments. He also uh, played uh, the lute and he probably sang, uh, but the keyboard was the primary source, the primary way for him to create music. Now, I, uh, before we enter into the music, um, I wanted to point out this thing that starts becoming um, relevant about Bach, not just as a music composer, but as an artistic and intellectual figure in in the broader sense um, so the figure of composer offered by Bach is one that is multiple things at once he writes music he performs it he certainly uses music to express his religious beliefs perhaps we're gonna say a couple of things later um, he uses music to teach uh, which means that he write music to teach music, which is interesting. Uh, music <laughs> is a way to learn about harmony, composition, techniques, uh, uh, articulation, of probably here training. Uh, not necessarily all the music that he writes has the goal to be performed or to be heard. And this attitude shows how... Uh, to someone like Bach, the discipline required to become a proficient musician is not different than the one necessary, for example, to read and write, to learn how to read and to understand Latin or Greek or to learn about mathematics or philosophy. To him, music is a fully, fully humanistic subject. Um, that is one of the reasons why I think 
uh, his role in the history of music and more broadly in the history of art is so important in this in the same manner why uh, dante's commedia is not just important because it's uh, is a beautiful uh, work of poetry but is also a work that uh, establishes uh, a language as well establishes some points about um, uh, christian theology and a few other things so the role of this artist uh, is much more than just create beautiful interesting inspiring music but it seems to spread in other areas of uh, humanistic uh, endeavor on this note i'm going to quote uh, a young musician whom i i've heard uh, talking about Bach recently um, this is uh, from uh, uh, a video i found uh, about Bach called uh, divine harmonies uh, Bach's metaphysics of music and uh, uh, the, this young musician is called Philip Holm and uh, I, uh, it's so interesting because of course I will share a link to this uh, in the description so you can, um, so you can, you can um, go down the rabbit hole of, uh, if you're interested, of the metaphysics um, of music in, in Bach's uh, works I just want to read it. Uh, Bach seems to have been a rather devoted Christian Protestant and he seems to have the idea that music can almost be divine or at least summon the divine presence through its harmony and beauty and uh, might connect such themes with uh, philosophical ideas of people like uh, Spinoza or Leibniz. Bach seems to have... Uh, said uh, written at some point music has a divine purpose so continuing uh, on his quote um, he brings into the conversation the pythagoreans and the pythagoreans uh, probably were dominant uh, philosophical view of uh, of the time so to the Pythagoreans, reality was essentially mathematical. Everything is made up of numbers and geometry, a universe of harmonious ratios and pattern. So to, to these philosophers, the universe is harmonious, perfectly so. In fact, everything follows the perfect rules of mathematics and uh, its harmony, a philosophical standpoint, often referred to as the quote-unquote music of the spheres. Um, and ideas of harmony are of course directly related to music, which arguably is concerned with harmony in different ways. Thus, to these thinkers, the universe was musical, because mathematics and music are intimately connected being ruled by the same ratios and structures since music and its harmony correspond directly to the mathematical harmony and ratios at least for the most part this means that music somehow expresses the divine harmony at the core of reality this is uh, this is quite interesting the idea that um, 
to a certain extent we can represent uh, the universe its harmony and the principle that uh, under our underneath reality um, is quite fascinating and certainly was very compelling for the Pythagoreans and uh, it seems that Bach was inclined to believe the same so I'm gonna perhaps provide some technical practical maybe musical evidence to this argument by uh, showing and, and talking a little bit today about the the piece that I chose, which is a fugue. Uh, this is from uh, the first book, the C sharp major fugue. Um, by the way, uh, the I said in the beginning, this is uh, the beginning of a, of a series, and uh, this might not be the exact beginning. I, I, th I think it will be recorded as the second episode, because this the first one started a couple of months ago, uh, when I talked about Bach and uh, architecture. Uh, in that episode I explored another fugue from the same book that time was in D-sharp minor. So the piece of today, the fugue in C-sharp major, um, has its own prelude. Uh, it is a delightful piece of music. Um, very familiar to young pianists as it is usually taken as a speed competition and um, I would like to focus on the fugue today but anyway I'd like to play for you uh, the prelude as well <laughs> aspects to it. Um, first of all, just a quick note on what a fugue is. It is a form, it's a type of a composition that is based on um, a subject which is um, a short melody and uh, uses its uh, repetitions to to draw its own trajectory. 
um, the technique used to, to compose it is called counterpoint and it's one of the most complex uh, creative te techniques um, as a centuries of history um, and development so uh, we will not uh, discuss counterpoint here today um, if you want to know more about it actually there are plenty of uh, resources uh, that go into um, technical aspects and more a more refined um, perspective on it um, I would say on YouTube is quite easy to find material explaining uh, with more detail generally what a fugue is and how it is constructed and even probably a counterpoint uh, but um, Today we're going to look at uh, musical aspects of it. Um, the most common way to describe uh, the musical trajectory of a fugue is that once the subject is presented, uh, a complementing melody is generated, which now uh, dialogues with it, create uh, a playful dialogue. Uh, as a matter of fact, two ideas are now driving the music forward. Um, composers then play with the creative ways in which such dialogue can happen. Uh, you, you might have uh, this playful dialogue between subject and its complementing counter-subject, or different episodes where the subject generates alternatives of itself. Let's give some examples. The subject of this fugue is this one. Nice melody, right? I'll play it again. Now the subject is presented once again. you see generating a counter-subject. Okay, so this is a, a, a dialogue of two parts now. I'm gonna play this a little uh, beginning again. can point out at a couple of uh, other ways in which the composer makes these two parts keep on dialo dialoguing between each other. Uh, for example, um, the counter subject might, uh, as I was saying, generating alternatives of uh, itself. So if you recall, the counter subject goes like this. So he goes at some point. You can hear how it has changed, but it's quite similar. Huh? These are different versions of the same idea. And uh, uh, while this happens, uh, Bach generates more variations. Thank you. 
other other ways for example could be the way in which Bach uh, uses the subject to um, create some more variations so remember the subject starts with right um, and what he does at some point is It's all about somehow um, using the same character, the same melody in order to create momentum and uh, mo motion forward. Um, let's say something about the character of this, because the character is all in the subject. This character is very joyful, youthful, is a very rich subject. Um, this uh, leap up of a sixth is quite uh, unusual, especially because uh, it is one of the uh, rules of counterpoint. Uh, I'll say that Bach uh, um, conflicts with more often. This interval is quite large uh, for singers to, uh, to, to, to get in tune, which means that it was avoided. But Bach's perspective in this case is just um, instrumental. This is another evidence of Bach's uh, keyboard approach, not just a, a vocal or, or ensemble approach. Um, he wants to develop instrumental technique and um, uh, it also give, made more challenge, challenging uh, by the fact that the articulation of it uh, has to be quite various. Here is a legato and these are gonna likely to be separated notes. Even more difficult from the fact that is, um, this is, if you recall, this is in C sharp major. It has seven sharps in the key signature, a delight to read for sure, and uh, it happens most on the black keys, making it uh, quite tricky for a pianist to to perform um, and now before I play a little bit of it I want you to follow me and listen um, the harmonic journey so let me see if I can do this with with the microphone right uh, in right place so the harmonic journey, I think, is the most interesting aspect of it. And I'm going to play it and I speak you through. at the first uh, landing landing mark harmonic landmark which is uh, the main key C sharp this uh, what I play so far is a, a little period a little journey up to right here and from here let's hear let's see what happens until the next landmark to 
be the next landmark. What is this? This is the um, G sharp, which is the dominant, and uh, it's uh, the second most important harmonic uh, function within uh, within the key. By tonic and dominant, we just simply means uh, two of the uh, seven notes of the scale. Okay, let's continue. <laughs> quite a landmark we are now in B flat oh sorry in A sharp minor first time that we hear um, a minor uh, key coming in minor of course uh, it's a bit more sad so this was introduced right here so you see already the minor key creeping in The character uh, has changed from major to minor, but the subject has stayed the same. Okay, we are, as I was saying, in A sharp minor. Um, in this case, we are talking about the sixth note. We started from the first, we touched on the fifth, and now the sixth. sharp is the third note remember uh, we start from the first then we touch the fifth then the sixth and now the third Okay, we 
<laughs> back to the first but notice how long it took to get back here uh, Bach uh, delighted us with a long virtuosic uh, passage instrumental section in which you could hear plenty of uh, the, the subject uh, offered plenty of times in various manners um, I'm gonna play this um, passage again it goes like this <laughs> starting key, key number one, and now okay I've heard this already this actually is a transcription of the very first episode um, uh, we it just develops this way about uh, we are on the last page we're about to end it but he doesn't um, follow uh, what is uh, what is previously done and now we continue on to a different key okay what key are we oh this is f sharp major we're now in the chord number four Notice the variety of uh, melodic uh, material under which the subject is uh, sometimes completely covered. Um, you might have heard this thing. This taratan taratan taratan. This is coming from the subject. This thing. It's a counter subject and this little and then we can find it all over the place for example here you hear that little free note thingy uh, at some point becomes uh, uh, its own full sequence goes like this yeah. how how interesting and then the last detail uh, melodic detail this uh, 
uh, skip of sixth. I'm talking about this. This large interval I was talking about earlier, which becomes part of the subject. You see this? These large intervals. And he takes them often to make it uh, into music. something similar right and then there is this uh, beautiful instrumental section where it just goes bananas so Uh, this is the harmonic journey that uh, he does. We are not just touching on the close keys. These are not, this is not just about touching on the tonic, the dominant and the other uh, closer keys. But this is probably in the light of what we were saying earlier. Um, the ability of music uh, through its mathematical principles to represent uh, a sort of divine harmony. This is, by the way, a topic explored and expanded on by the famous pianist and musicologist uh, Robert Levin. Um, there is a truly <laughs> interesting, remarkable uh, lecture on this topic online. I think it was done during, during COVID. Uh, it's called um, Bach's Tonal Cosmology and Composing procedure, Procedures. If you are uh, curious about knowing in more detail what this is, um, you will find it there. But the main trait of these ideas is that the representation of uh, cosmic spheres happens in uh, Bach's music by having the subject touching on each corner of the space, the harmonic space in this case, which is the major scale. So the major scale is the harmonic space is this. Each note has its own its own center. Each of the six notes of the scale, um, if you are wondering why not seven, well, because the seventh one is too weak to make it into its own center, tonal center. Uh, I was saying each of the six notes of the scale, called the hexachord, becomes the center of a different harmonic sphere around which the musical dialogue orbits. 
So we found uh, the C. But then we found we found the G sharp. different ones this is still still very close orbiting around uh, the main center and then we found this uh, instrumental moment where it turned around uh, probably turn around a variety of, of keys at once making it uh, sound like it's going farther and faster toward the center This idea of uh, rotating orbits around the center it seems to me particularly uh, poignant in the in the dis discussion and conversation about Bach's uh, cosmology. I just want to point out the after the richness of this uh, orbiting around and traveling and playfully going around the musical spheres. I found interesting how it ends um, it goes uh, where should I start it's a uh, very straightforward ending no unnecessary ornamentation nor any rhetoric uh, rhetorical overstatement it's dry it's somber and very convincing uh, just gonna leave you with this uh, i i just love the variety and playfulness and uh, fascinated by the virtuosity of it and at the same time uh, extremely engaged in this idea that um, composition such as is this one participate in the representation of something higher can inspire some higher thoughts some spiritual thoughts and maybe even uh, a way to see the entire universe uh, we might agree or disagree but i find it is such a fascinating um, concept i'll add um, a link to uh, the video of me playing this um, this is a video you can uh, follow my hand and also follow the score so you can probably uh, spot uh, the things that we have uh, mentioned during this episode um, I also po of course uh, add the links to 
the lecture by Robert Levin, uh, Bach's tonal cosmology and uh, composing procedures, and also about the video that I quoted earlier called uh, Divine Harmonies, uh, Bach's uh, metaphysics of uh, music. So I just want to thank you all for uh, tuning in and staying with me today. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, if you have uh, comments or feedbacks or suggestions for uh, topics, musical topics, I would love to hear from you. Please um, just uh, write a message either through the uh, uh, Spotify uh, platform or on my website. I would love to hear from you and uh, just want to thank you again for listening and uh, uh, until next time here on Where is the Music Podcast. You all be well. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to Where is the Music Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, look up for others. I made a few. I publish an episode every week roughly, investigating each time a different aspect of music, the music making the music listening, the meaning of music and its relevance in our lives. It is very helpful for me if you like, subscribe, follow on your favorite platform. Where is the music is on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TuneIn and Google Podcasts. If you like to support me, you are free to do so through Patreon. Link in description. Thank you again. Until next time. <laughs>